Welcome to Radio Who, What, Why. I'm Jeff Shackman. The legendary studio head Harry Cohn once said to one of his writers that if you want to send a political message, use Western Union. The point was that movies were for entertainment, and some have even tried to make that argument with respect to novels. Over the years, this has hardly been the case. One of the great examples of this is Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead. Released 75 years ago this month, this story of ambition, love, and architecture reverberates through our political discourse today, both in middle America and in the halls of Congress. What other 75-year-old novel can spark a heated debate between Paul Ryan and Paul Krugman. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Yaron Brook. He's an Israeli-American entrepreneur and writer. He's the current chairman of the board of the Ayn Rand Institute, where he was its executive director from 2000 to 2017. He's also the co-founder of BH Equity Research and the author of several books. It is my pleasure to welcome Yaron Brook here to talk about the 75th anniversary of the publication of The Fountainhead. Yaron, thanks so much for joining us on Radio Who, What, Why. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you here. Talk a little bit about how the book was originally received, what the reaction to it was 75 years ago when it came out. Well, the first thing to mention about it is that 12 publishers turned it down. They, they thought the book was too philosophical, too many speeches, and it, it would be too controversial that the philosophy presented in it was too outside of the mainstream, and they turned it down. The 13th publisher, luckily, published it, but it too did not believe too much in the novel and they didn't print too many copies, but it became a, a kind of a, a word of mouth bestseller. So they had to run back to the presses and print many copies. The book was actually received quite well by, by the critics and by, uh, by the publishing world and, and even, you know, places like New York times wrote positive reviews of the book, very different than the reception who later book Atlas Shrugged would get. Right. Um, and, uh, and again, it became a cultural phenomenon. People bought it, people read it, people discussed it. It created little movements of students on campuses. And indeed, to this day, the book sells almost just about as many copies as it did uh, back when it was first a bestseller in the 1940s. So it's, it's one of these, uh, really a publishing phenomena of a book that sells as well 75 years after it was published as it did when it was originally a bestseller. And when it was originally published and it became kind of this cult classic and people, as you say, talked about it, students got on the bandwagon, what were the, the political and cultural touchstones that people latched onto then? What were the things that captured the imagination at that point? Sure. I mean, remember, this is 1943. So this is a period where collectivism, political collectivism, both in the form of fascism in, in Germany and in the form of communism in the Soviet Union, were at the heyday. They, 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 were, they seemingly were victorious. And here comes a book that challenges all of that, not in a political drama. The book indeed doesn't really talk about politics and doesn't really address the issue of politics. The book is about an architect and about his uh, struggle to remain, uh, to remain independent, to remain an independent thinker, to see his artistic vision become a reality. But he is challenged by the forces of conformity, by the forces of collectivism, by the forces of groupthink and tribalism. The same forces that politically in the world out there seem to be winning. So. It was very much, I think, seen as uh, as massive political implications, as 
kind of America still representing the spirit of individualism, the spirit of independence, and the rest of the world really embracing uh, collectivism. And in, in, in that sense, I think it was viewed, and it is still viewed today, as the classic American novel. This is a novel about America, about the fundamental struggle at the heart and at the core of America and at the core of Western civilization. During the 75-year period, and certainly it, it has gotten a lot of attention now, and we'll, we'll talk more about that, but during the 75-year sure. arc of its publishing history, what were the periods when it, when it didn't sell as well? What were the periods when there wasn't as much attention focused on it? So from what I can tell from the history, uh, you know, probably the 70s and the early 80s uh, were, were periods where it sold less. I don't really know before that, but my guess is it sold very well mm-hmm. in the 40s. And then uh, and then during during the right after the publication of Atlas Shrugged, I'm sure it sold very well because Atlas Shrugged was such a big hit. And then I'd say since the early 80s, where we have good publishing uh, data, it's seen a steady rise so that every decade it has sold more. And of course, in, in the best period for sales of all of Ayn Rand's books was around 2009. Uh, I'd say the second half of 2008, 2009, and into 2010. So the, the Great Recession, uh, the election of Barack Obama, Obamacare, the, the, the notion that people had that Atlas Shrugged is, is really happening right before they rise, I think led to, to rise in sales across the board. I'd say declined since then, but still uh, at, at a higher level than than 20 years ago. So still on a general upward upward sales track. Mm-hmm. And when people talk about it today, and you you've been involved, you know, with, with Ayn Rand's work, and obviously with with this book sure. for quite some time, is there a difference? in the way people perceive it today and, and the issues that they focus on, the parts of it that they focus on in terms of the book and in terms of her broader objectivist philosophy, different today than, than in the 60s or 70s or 80s? I don't think so in terms of the book, because I think the book is quite clear. The book is really about this this individualist who who is willing to, to struggle and to, to succumb to anything to see his vision become a reality and, and, is, and he sticks to, to his principles and has integrity as opposed to the compromise of the appeaser, the conformist who is, you know, his friend nominally in the novel and, and represents the exact opposite of him. And then, of course, the, the manipulator, the critic who is trying to gain power through destroying the individualistic spirit and, and, uh, and, you know, perpetuating the, the, the idea of conformity. I, I, I think people see that conformity and that collectivism more today. They identify, in a sense, with the negative. They, they see the negative more prevalent in society today. I think it was, I mean, there used to be this thing that people used to say about Ayn Rand. Oh, you know, nobody's quite that bad. Nobody's quite that evil. Uh, who, who, who villains all caricatures. And I think the difference is that today, People read her novels and say, yeah, I know a politician like this. I know an intellectual like this. I know one of those talking heads on TV who says exactly what these villains of Ayn Rand said. So uh, reality is catching up to her novels. And I think that's the one difference. With regard to broadly her philosophy, what I'm finding is that more and more people feel like they have to create straw men to attack. Now, that existed to some extent 
going way back to William F. Buckley's decision to kick Ayn Rand out of the conservative movement and write a horrible review of Atlas Shrugged in order to achieve that, uh, all the way to today with Robert Reich just a few days ago putting out a video that, create, that, that presents a straw man of her views and then links her ideas with Donald Trump when nothing could be further from the truth. So, you know, to this, for the last 50, 60 years, people have had to create things, make up things that she never said in order to attack her. And, and maybe that is the greatest compliment that anybody gives her is the fact that they can't argue with what she actually said. They have to make stuff up and that they feel it necessary in the world we live in today to constantly attack her, both on the left and on the right. It's interesting, though, in the way the world, the complexity of the world has changed. And I was thinking about this in the context, particularly of Silicon Valley, where there, there is yep. more of a libertarian streak, where, where you will find people, as you know best, that have an affinity for her and her work, and yet the focus on in Silicon Valley is much more collectivist, much more team-oriented than you know Howard Rock could ever imagine. I don't, I don't agree with you. So, uh, so first of all, I don't think that that I ran was against teamwork, and even in the Fountainhead, uh, Howard Rock collects around him a, a collection of people who are very talented and who he respects and who work with him on the projects. But what, what is more like a Howard Rourke character than somebody like Steve Jobs who creates an iPhone out of his own imagination and doesn't do any, uh, you know, focus groups or surveys or anything like that, it, you know, presents us with, in a sense, a finished product for us to, to reject or to accept. Um, I think that the mythology of Silicon Valley as being some kind of collectivistic place is not at all true. It is driven by visionaries. It, it is driven by the Howard Walks of the world, whether they know it or not. I think the tragedy of Silicon Valley is that they don't know it. The tragedy of Silicon Valley is that they feel like they have to play into the collectivistic hand. So even though many of them are true inspired geniuses who drive their companies and, and, and who really are the key behind the success of those companies, so look at it, uh, Jeff Bezos would be another example, um, they, they feel like they need to apologize for that or they, still, or they feel like they need to put on a pretense of, oh, no, no, this is all kind of a, a group think. It's not. It, it's, it's driven by certain individuals who, who work with other people, as everybody does who is successful, in order to achieve their aims, but where they control a, a disproportionate part of the destiny of the company. And why do you think that is? That if you believe that, why do you think that those individuals need to put on that more groupthink patina? Well, because I think that's what the culture demands. I think we live in a collectivistic culture. We live in a culture that expects you to be um, altruistic, to, 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 to sacrifice, to uh, care more about other people than yourself. And, and all these people put on that, I think, to some extent, it's a facade. To some extent, they believe it. But I think to a large extent, it's what they think they should believe, whether they believe it or not. So, so uh, you know, uh, um, Bill Gates has to leave Microsoft and start a foundation, start giving his money away. You can see when he talks that his passion is technology, that his passion is startups, that his passion is business. But he is, he is, uh, he, 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 it's, it's what the culture expects, and unfortunately, in this realm, 
they're not as individualistic as, as Howard Locke, and they've succumbed. And I think that's true broadly in our politics and broadly in our culture. The, the, the collectivistic philosophy, the altruistic philosophy, is the explicit philosophy everybody holds, and when they don't live it, they feel guilty, and they need later in life to find a way to compensate for it. And I think a lot of what you hear coming out of Silicon Valley is their attempt to compensate for the fact that they're actually pretty self-interested individualists who drive their companies and who have vision, but you know, they feel guilty about all of that because that's what the culture has taught them. And that, I think, is a great tragedy and, well, well, of, of the which, 21st century. Which gets to really the, my next question. Why do you think that that's a tragedy? Why do you think that there, there's something negative about having to apologize for that or to be or to function within a culture that is that is more accepting of of a collectivist vision? Well, because I think the collectivism is very dangerous and very bad for the individuals. And I think these individuals in particular have nothing to apologize. They are incredibly successful, and they've been successful by making all of our lives better already. You don't, become, you don't make $100 billion as Jeff Bezos did without changing the world for the better, without making the world a better place to live. My life is certainly much, much better because of Amazon and because of Apple and because of Google and because of all. What do they have to apologize for? They should be proud of their achievements. They should be, uh, you know, they, they, they should walk around with a sense of, wow, and, and we should thank them rather than, rather than demand their apology. Don't we also have to look at the big picture? I mean, all of them are incredibly successful and incredibly talented, and I agree with everything you say, except that none of them exist without the Internet. The Internet doesn't exist without ARPNET, and ARPNET doesn't exist without the government. Well, that, that, that is speculation at best, that right? That is fact. Because <laughs> No, it's not, because, because the fact is that, that um, much of the Internet was created by universities. The idea that universities wouldn't create it if they had been private is, is, is wrong. And only created uh, it with government idea, funding. Even in a laissez-faire government uh, would have a defense department, so much of OpNet would exist no matter what. And, of course, the Internet was nothing, literally nothing until a group of entrepreneurs uh, figured out how to use it uh, in, in a constructive, productive, creative way. And those were entrepreneurs. Those were, that was not the government. And, and the funding the university gets does not necessarily have to come from government. In a, in a truly free market, universities would get just as much funding, if not more, to do basic research from these entrepreneurs who would make even more money uh, in, in a completely free market. So, I mean, that's where the money comes from anyway, because the government has to take it from the wealth that people create. So the idea that the universe we live in today is the only path to get at an internet and even the best path to get at the internet or anything else is I think just wrong. I think we'd be richer, we'd have greater technology if the government had never entered the space other than the necessity, uh, necessity to do so for national defense. How was the view of, of the Fountainhead, how was that shaped or changed by Atlas Shrugged that came several years later? Well, I think Atlas Shrugged sharpens the philosophical view. So I think it, by the time Fountainhead is written, I mean, Ayn Rand has a, has a general and, and knowledge of what her philosophy is, but she hasn't worked out all the details. I think by the time Atlas Shrugged is finished, Ayn Rand is, it has her philosophy down uh, in her mind and, and to a large extent on paper. She, she knows what she thinks about every last detail 
of that philosophy. She's got still things to work out, which she does in the 60s and 70s. But so I think Atlas Shrugged is a more complete philosophical novel. Uh, in Fountainhead, we're getting a big part of that philosophy, but it's not completely worked out yet. It's not in, in its details. But essentially, it's the same. It's this idea that she always had of, of man as a heroic being, as of man as using his reason and using his mind to, to live the best life that he can live and to make the most of it, to make the most of the opportunities you have. You only live once and... Uh, and, and she believed your moral responsibility was to pursue happiness, pursue flourishing, and, uh, and do it by using your mind, by using your rational faculty to, to discover the values that, that make life good and make life worth living. Do you think that that philosophy is more accepted, more pervasive today? You, at the same time as it's more rejected today. So I think, I think there are more people who've embraced her philosophy today than ever before. But I also think she's hated by more people than ever before. So I think at the uh, end, I, I think she, uh, her popularity and, and people who have embraced the philosophy, that number keeps growing from decade to get decade. And I think that's correlated to some extent with, with the decline in the culture as our culture becomes more collectivist, uh, more intolerant of different ideas, uh, and more, you know, more irrational, more uh, the culture. I think the culture today is dominated again, both left and right, by a reverence for emotion uh, over reason and, uh, and the, the, the prevalence of emotion over reason, whether it's safe spaces or whether it's Twitter. Um, what you see is people spewing emotions rather than people presenting rational arguments. And, and that would have, I think, horrified Ayn Rand. And, and to some extent, that's what's preventing her ideas from having even a greater following. What do you think is the greatest misconception about her work today? I think the greatest misconception is about her idea of self-interest, her idea of selfishness. She wrote a book called self, uh, The Virtue of Selfishness. And I think that, that what you see in the straw manning of her ideas is the idea that being selfish means lying, cheating, stealing, exploiting other people, you know, it, it, following your emotions, doing whatever you feel like doing, and... and uh, and putting down other people for your own success. And that is exactly the opposite of what she believed in terms of what self-interest means. She believed in rational, long-term self-interest guided by moral values that led to a prosperous and successful life, neither sacrificing yourself to other people or asking anybody to sacrifice for you or demanding anybody be sacrificed for you. It, it's about how it works. It's about an independent thinker living his life by his own standard, not exploiting people, but, but living, you know, and making the most of life. So I, I, I unfortunately, I think that's the idea that, uh, that most of the critics jump on and misrepresent her and create straw men about. How do you think finally her views would have changed over time if, as they moved into contemporary times? You know, it's really hard to tell. I mean, I, I, think, she was, I think she was a genius, and it's hard for me to put myself in her, her views. I mean, I think that she was already um, opposed to the Republican Party politically uh, with Reagan. I mean, she did not vote for Ronald Reagan because she feared the encroachment of the religious rights into the Republican Party. I think all of her fears were confirmed by the, the dominance of the religious right in the, in the Republican Party over the last few decades. Uh, so I think, I think she would have felt more and more isolated, both politically and, and uh, mainly politically. 
Um, but I, I don't know that our views would have changed dramatically. I don't know that anything's happened over the last 30 years to say uh, that, you know, there's some big flaw or something that really needs to change about Ayn Rand's philosophy. I, I really do think that the principles she articulated uh, are as true today, even if its application today would be would be different. She would view different threats today. She would have a lot to say about our foreign policy. She would have a lot to say about a lot of things that are happening today that I don't think were that concerning in the 1970s. Yaron Brook is the president of the And Rand Institute, and he speaks to us today marking the 75th anniversary of the publication of The Fountainhead. Yaron, I thank you so much for spending time with us here on Radio Who, What, Why. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.